Maybe there is other historical evidence of substitutional baptism I'm not aware of. As always, I greatly enjoyed the free part of your podcast. (laughs) Welcome back to Reason Together, the podcast for Christians who think about stuff. I'm Thomas here with Daniel, my good friend. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Good. And uh, near Merry Christmas to you. I mean, not near Merry, but I mean yeah. like near Christmas, Merry. Well, hey, I mean, by the time this comes out, it might be like the day before Christmas. Yes. Or a few days. I don't know. We'll have to see. So Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Thank you. <clears throat> um, before we get too much further into it, we would like to thank our patrons over at patreon.com slash reason together. Uh, we do appreciate all of you taking the time and the money to support this little humble venture. Uh, we appreciate you very much for that. Uh, with that being said, we'd like to thank our newest patron, a uh, young fellow by the name of Levi. Thank you for joining us. Yes. At the Welcome elite aboard. level. Elite. Congratulations. Yes. And thank you, Levi. Yes. Very grateful. Yep. I, uh, I have to say we had our, we had an early Christmas here cause we travel and, uh, and two of my children, uh, requested and received Reason Together podcast t-shirts for Christmas. I, I, yes. I saw that. Yes. I got a picture a little oh, bit ago. <laughs> Good. Yes. Good. From uh from from your child, from your son. Yes, fantastic. Uh, he sent me a picture of him and his sister sporting the uh the flashy orange Reason yes. Together yes. t-shirt. Reason Together merch. Which, by the way, if you would like to pick up a T-shirt for yourself and be free advertising for us because we're cheap, um, <clears throat> you can go over to Patreon. No, not Patreon. What am I doing? <laughs> ReasonTogether.fm. <laughs> ReasonTogether.fm. And you can look and see how, the, how you can support the show. There are different ways to do that under the support tab. One of those ways is purchase a T-shirt. Uh, you know, thinking about holidays, um, and uh, and and how we how we um, the adjectives that we give them, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, you notice that we have we say Merry Christmas, and that just really rolls together, doesn't it? Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. It, it would sound kind of weird or cheesy to say Happy Christmas. It just I don't know. There's just something lacking there. <laughs> but we say um, you know a Happy Hanukkah, mm-hmm. but Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I mean, how do we decide that? And maybe we should start adding some other adjectives. Like, what about Kwanzaa? I don't even know what Kwanzaa is, but should we like... It's made up. Ma- made up? Should it be like Sorry. jubilant Kwanzaa or, you know, um, joyous uh, joyous Valentine's Day or something? Yeah. Yeah. I think we ought to start looking in the thesaurus and finding something other than happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> happy Thanksgiving. Right. That's good. good I mean, yeah. like... Like, uh, six, no, never mind. I guess I, I'm still kind of, my mind is stuck back on Kwanzaa and, <laughs> and the reason why it, that, if I'm not mistaken, that is the holiday that I believe people try to lead you to believe it's been around for like thousands of years or whatever. And it's like three years um, old or something. Yeah. Or not. Well, I mean, longer than that, but you know, <laughs> a couple decades maybe, I think. Okay. Um, but if I remember right, it was made up, uh, recently, but it's. People try to lead you to believe it's an ancient holiday when it's it's really a new thing. So but it's not. Yeah. Fact check me on that if I'm wrong, folks. Now, I, I will say, uh, and this is certainly not to rob Christmas Day of its uh, meaning and honor, but December 24, uh, 
other than being, of course, the eve of Christmas, is National Eggnog Day. And I have to give a little hurrah there, yeah, for those yeah. who recognize the true value of eggnog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> yep. The, uh, yeah, that's it. It is good stuff. We yeah. have a brand here called Hood, H-O-O-D. Okay. Hood. Yeah. It's, uh, they make excellent eggnog. I bought eggnog from the hood. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, okay. It's so. an eggnog you don't drink when it gets dark outside. <laughs> eggnog from the hood. Okay. I don't know. That was that was lame. All That's right. about as lame as saying the reason they call Christmas Noel is because when you spell Christmas, there is Noel. Noel. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. A yeah. corny dad joke mood today. Yeah. Why don't they call it no Z or something? <laughs> or no, no Q. I suppose it would fit. And what are you uh, saying? We're, we're digging our hole deeper. Mary, no Q. Like, what do they say? Please, uh, please stop. Please help us. Please stop. <laughs> okay. Stop, stop us. Quick, please. quick. Get in All the right. conversation. That's All right. <clears throat> something. Yeah. All right. Hey, we've got, we've got a full list. So I, we do. I don't, um, I don't know where to start. Um, well, you, I, I uh, you may start wherever you, wherever your good. little heart desires. Why, thank you. That's such a good Christmas sentiment, I guess. Um, Merry yeah, Christmas. Except there's, uh, there's feedback. That's always a good place to start here. And um, this is feedback on Old Testament salvation. Somebody had mm-hmm. asked the question or just referenced the statement. Uh, people in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross. We look back mm-hmm. to the cross and somehow called that fundamental heresy. Okay, so the question is uh, here says uh, one. This uh, this is Herman. Thank you, Herman, for uh, mm-hmm. giving us some feedback here. One of my pet peeves, he says, is the term Old Testament Christians. You didn't say it. Uh, I would call them saints or believers. In reference mm-hmm. to, okay, and I, I understand, it, would that, yes. well, I'll read on, so maybe I don't answer the question, ask the question that he's going to answer. In reference to your discussion on Abraham's salvation, I agree and think the Bible explains it in great detail. What is more obscure to me is Lot's salvation. He is described as having a righteous soul, true? Uh, also, I believe uh, many thousands of the people of, Nine- of Nineveh repented under the preaching of Jonah, but was his actual message, I uh, think, was his actual message of redemption. I guess it's not important. They turned from their evil, sarcasm alert. Will there be a section of heaven for, for them and the Psalm 41, 1 through 4, humble, merciful, and the Romans 1, 17 through 20, faithful? Maybe we should read those. Will there be a second class heavenly citizen that got in because God blinked, Acts 17, 30? <laughs> in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And finally, John preached a baptism unto repentance. Christians are, are to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Acts 19, 1 through 5. I always thought Paul's question in 1 Corinthians 15, 29 was hypothetical. If you don't believe Jesus rose, he's dead, then why would you get baptized in his name if he's dead? Oh, interesting. Maybe there is other historical evidence of substitutional baptism I'm not aware of. As always, I greatly enjoyed the free part of your podcast. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Herman. Thanks, Herman. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I hope the, uh, the not free part was decent too, but um, okay, <laughs> let's see. So I just want to draw out one part of that feedback there. He says, because uh, we, we, you asked the question or, or no, no, you didn't. Somebody else had given us a question. 
a while back about baptism for the dead. Uh, such that was our, uh, our friend, uh, our friend Ethan over he, from the Take the Coffee podcast. Yes, and he said, and so Hermans says. Um, let me let me read first First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, okay. so we kind of get a, a refresher on on that uh, text there. Okay. Okay, here it is, First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Else what sh- uh, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Uh, Herman says, I always thought Paul's question was hypothetical. If you don't believe Jesus rose, he's dead, then why would you get baptized in his name if he's dead? My response to that would be, Hmm. without further study, um, without looking uh, here into the Greek, but it says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Right. Um, Not not in the name of the dead or, you know, in the dead or whatever. It's for the dead, which kind of seems to speak on behalf of something, uh, not mm-hmm. in the same sense that we are baptized into yeah. and because of Christ. Right. So being baptized on behalf of someone is different than being baptized in the name of someone. Yes. Right. Okay. And what you're saying is First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine is saying on behalf of. Well, that's what it, how it reads in the English, anyway, uh, with just on a cursory reading of it. Sure. Um, where in the name of we obviously understand means um, you know some something different. We don't get we obviously don't get baptized on behalf of Christ, like uh, in the sense yeah. that we're doing it for Him. Um, sure. You know that we're being baptized because He couldn't be or something. Well, um, if it was in the name of the dead, there that would make a lot more sense, and it would make Herman's answer rather apropos to. Uh, what we talked about, um, because uh, it would be almost simplistic to answer in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, seemed- it, it, does, it does fit Paul's rhetoric there, in which he's using sort of a question and answer sort right. of rhetoric. You know, yeah. if if the resurrection isn't true, then why would you do this? And if it's not true, then why would you do that? So it would fit the rhetoric, but You're it right. doesn't fit the grammar. Right, uh, at least what it looks like in English. Um, I'm going to look at it okay. a little bit more. But he also then adds this, and I think maybe we've discussed this before, and I don't know if we want to hit it right now, but he says, one more uh, one more person to add to the list of Old Testament saints that raised questions in my mind is Lazarus. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Why did Lazarus go to Abraham's bosom? I've heard many sermons that jump from this text to John 3 or the Romans road, and I understand that this is the clear message of salvation through Jesus Christ. But once again, what was Lazarus' path to redemption? Verse 25, that's an interesting question. Verse 25 seems to credit some kind of karma. Mm -hmm. I know that isn't it. And I understand what he's saying. Uh, Thank you for your time. Yeah. Um, You want to explain what he's referencing there, the karma? Uh, I don't have it open in front of me, actually. Um, I'm, I'm kind of slow at getting the app to go here. Um, okay. Luke 16, you, you say 25. Is, yeah. um, but Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Kind of like, remember, you had your good stuff in life, so now you're tormented. That's what he's saying. Is it sounds like that, that, well, you know, Lazarus had a bad life, so now he's got a good eternity. You know, like yeah, no, the, I, I, I haven't read it that way. I mean, it doesn't come across to me that way, as if he's saying that his life is has a causal relationship to his current state in eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but that's I guess not the so way some I people, some, some people, would ask why is he saying, um, 
why is he, why does he throw that phrase in? Remember you in your lifetime received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforting your tormented. Well, cause that, that seemed obvious, you know, that phone. I'm sorry to, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you. That phone. We just, we just try to keep it. Yeah. We just like to, to make it sound very homey and, and original and, and comfortable. We just throw relatable. in these sound of relatable, right? We're, we're a relatable podcast folks. That's what yeah. we are. We Ross, have can distractions. You, can you throw in like a baby cry right about here? No, and, don't, uh, don't do no. that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, actually that was a real phone. Yeah. I'm we're, we're yeah, podcasting right from the office of pastor Fox. Um, yeah. and I don't know how to mute my phone. So no. there's so many different directions this is going here. Let me pause for a second <laughs> yeah. and just reference the phrase uh, Abraham's feedback. bosom. Okay. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, Herman has good feedback here. There's a lot in here. I mean, you could almost take the whole rest of the episode okay, on this feedback. Herman episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the Abraham's bosom. My understanding of that is that bosom is not the term of a, a place where he is. It's, it's the notion that he is there and Abraham has his arm either around him or he's in some sort of embrace of the actual man, Abraham. Mm-hmm. He's in his bosom. See, that's a good way to explain it. Uh, and I, I like that explanation. Because as far as I know, it's not the name of the place there. Some people kind of take it that way, it seems like to me. And, I, and I'll just confess that I uh, am not at least not yet a um, compartment theory guy. Is that what they call it? A two compartment theory yeah, guy. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, I don't blame you. It's a difficult subject. Mm-hmm. I can't say I'm dogmatic about it either. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have given, uh, you know, at least in sermons where I've come across passages relating to it, I've given basically the ideas of what others say about it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I just, uh, I mean, you talk about the different words that are used, you know, Abraham's bosom, if people refer to that mm-hmm. as an actual place. And then there's Sheol paradise. Uh, and paradise. Mm-hmm. And then there's heaven. <laughs> Is that the same place? And then third heaven. And, uh, you know, and then you have Tartarus and you have Hades. And it's like all these different names. Are they different names for the same two places or are they multiple places? Is one Old Testament and one New Testament? Does Peter's writings on this where he led captivity? captive and so right, on does that right. is it is, was there some sort of exodus mass exodus from this place of the dead at the moment of the crucifixion when jesus died and so on there's so much to be said about that i just think it's beyond the scope of where we could even go today and i think it's beyond the scope yeah. of what we can know that may be true um and uh, so let's see he touches on why did lazarus go to abraham's bosom well, in in the most apparent sense to me would seem to be that he's a Jewish man um, mm-hmm. and Abraham's father of the Jews. And mm-hmm. so when he dies as a redeemed person, as a son of Abraham, who is the father of faith, essentially he, you know, and the father of the Israelite nation, um, it's 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 a good, good reference to Abraham's bosom. So, that he, I mean, are you suggesting that there was some sort of credence he was given after death as a result of his Jewish nationality? No, you mean that, that his nationality somehow affected salvation for him? Yeah, is that, is that what you're saying? Well, no, but I'm just thinking you're, you, it, it was a spoken in a Jewish context, you know, yeah. that he died and went to Abraham's bosom. Well, that seems kind of natural to the context that you would go to the place where Abraham is. 
Um, you know, but um, <laughs> so I mean, then what do you do with Old Testament Gentiles who expressed faith? You know, people like Rahab and um, Ruth. Uh, well, I guess Ruth maybe was somewhat sort of related right. yeah, to Yeah, that's Jewish. interesting. But um, again, if you're saying it's basically more a place, it's not the name of a place like uh, Philadelphia, Abraham's bosom. Right. It's more literally, a, you know, a gesture that they were greeted and comforted by Abraham himself, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I, I don't, I wouldn't buy into or ascribe to any notion that someone's nationality meant that you know as an old testament saint they would have gone to a place of a bliss or comfort as, as it says here with lazarus he was comforted and and i don't think nationality would have anything to do with that this seems contrary to everything that scripture suggests or teaches or overtly says about salvation or what happens after someone dies but to Jewish people, if he's speaking this story to Jewish people and he says he died and went to Abraham's mm -hmm. bosom, doesn't that seem kind of consistent with a Jewish story that he would comfort? Uh, as opposed to Abraham, as opposed to somebody else who would have been there too? Yes. Is that what you mean? Right. Sure. I mean, he yeah. was the progenitor of the nation. You yeah. Know? Okay. I think uh, I'm tracking with you now. It's just okay. I got a little nervous at first because it sounded like you were suggesting that Lazarus went to be a place of comfort because he was Jewish. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. No, because no, because I think the rich man like likely also was as well. Um, I agree. And didn't go there. So, uh, boy, a lot there, Herman. Maybe we'll have to like dissect that later and see if there's <laughs> anything to uh, to deal with. But thank you for the feedback. Uh, we do appreciate. Uh, when you guys throw yeah. questions our way and give us extra did, uh, angles here. Did, did you forget about the first part of his feedback or did you just not want to cover it today? Okay, remind me what that just is. About, uh, uh, yeah, I guess that was... you know, there was Lot um, where it references his righteous soul. Yeah. He talks about the people of Nineveh there. Um, yeah, well, um, on that? that's, that's interesting. Again, those are different and I'm just going to kind of off the top of my head here. Obviously, uh, I think it's Peter, indicates that Lot was a righteous man. So you really can't argue with that, that who who God calls righteous is righteous. And so he was a saved man, though by all outward appearances, we would have said, uh, oh man, no way. No way is Lot, mm -hmm. Lot saved. You know, his, yep. his life is so despicable. And yet there must have been a time, and we understand, we certainly understand in a New Testament context that um, that salvation is momentary. You know, I don't know if you want to say transactional, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not, oh, oh, well, you know, he lived a really good life, had a spotless testimony, therefore he's saved. No, we understand that um, it, it's, by, it's by that point in time action when I rest my soul, when I, when I yeah. rest on, on God. Uh, and in, in we, we're talking in an Old Testament context of there still being salvation by faith. That's the way salvation's always yeah. been, by faith. Now, the content may have been different or less specified than you know, a, a man with a specific name and a cross and, and, and things like that. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, apropos to where the conversation started a couple episodes ago or whenever the first time the question came up was, um, Abraham's faith, of course, was the mode, if I could use that term, uh, of his salvation. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe that's not the best word, but um, and it stands to reason that Lot would have been 
told the same things by Abraham, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that they had a relationship with each other where these things could have been communicated. Because I think that's where the question originally comes from. Okay, we read about Abraham. Uh, we believe he was saved in the Old Testament, but how? Was it a gospel of grace or works? Well, it was grace and it was by faith, mm-hmm. um, but we don't ever read of Lot's conversion. But yet it tells mm-hmm. us he was a righteous soul. I think yes. the best explanation for that is that Abraham was a patriarch of the truest sense of the word sure. and that he was a leader of others who were under his care. Good. And that included teaching them what he learned from God. Good. Yeah, very good uh, explanation. But and, and a side note to that uh, that we don't have to spend much time on, but is that the, what the issue of Lot actually teaches us, and this is significant, I think, to at least one theological group um, that seems to kind of want to deny this, is that a Christian can, if we, for lack of a better term, maybe backslide. Mm-hmm. Um, that just because you live a life like Lot doesn't absolutely mean that you're a lost man. Right. You know, right. and now, uh, it, it can, but it doesn't. Always. Sure. Right. Uh, so that's that makes it difficult sometimes to uh, navigate the un- yeah. knowing whether someone's saved or not from the outside. Sure. And, and as for the uh, the conversion of the Ninevites here, mm-hmm. um, that's a good question. And I just don't know that we have enough scriptural information to really know the answer to that. Was there repentance, a repentance unto redemption? Was it saving faith? Because if you remember the nature of Jonah's preaching, Mm -hmm, mm. I mean, that's like the simplest sermon ever, right? (laughs) Repent, because in 40 days, you're all going to die. That's just a very simple, short message. And we don't really know that he said any more than that. Um, They likely repented out of fear and stopped their evil ways. Was it just a repentance from their evil ways, in a sense? It could have been. But what's interesting is, uh, and this is from recently studying through some of the minor prophets, is that even though jo- uh, Nineveh was spared at the preaching of Jonah, it wasn't many more generations removed from that that they weren't spared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it may have been maybe a short-lived repentance. It may not have been a repentance unto salvation. Um, we just don't know. Um, and as for Herman's question here about John the Baptist, his preaching a baptism unto repentance and Christians are to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Um, I don't think they're different baptisms necessarily. Um, the, the purpose of the baptism in each case was identifying with something. And in John the Baptist preaching, they were identifying to what John was saying. Uh, they agreed with him about his testimony of who the Messiah was. He was the forerunner of Christ. Um, they repented. They were baptized. Whereas a Christian, their, their baptism is essentially the same thing. They're testifying to the, to the changed mind. And mm-hmm. the reason why I think John's baptism was, was, baptism was called a baptism unto repentance is because simply of what John emphasized much in his preaching, which was there should be fruits meet for repentance in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? Um, I think so. I guess what I'm saying is the people were not saved to a different thing under John's preaching necessarily than yeah, right. they were to to Christ uh, when they followed Christ. Um, and I and I think um, those those people who followed John who were a little perhaps paid attention better uh, <laughs> uh, would have known that because of John's clear relationship with the Lord Jesus. Though we do find cases in which some disciples of John who were a little farther removed from mm-hmm. the area 
we find at a later point, and I'm trying mm. to remember where they were. Uh, it was under around, Paul's ministry. Around Ephesus somewhere, I was going to say Ephesus, yeah. yes. They hadn't even heard of Jesus. <laughs> They'd only um, been baptized with John's baptism. Yep. Right. And it's like, I don't understand how they would have learned from John, how they would have not learned about Jesus from John the Baptist, unless they were just you know, playing the game of telephone from one person to the next. Do you get the idea that when the, that the baptism of repentance of John is basically people um, visually, physically, you know, manifesting, if you will, through the act of baptism, I'm ready to orient myself to the accepting of the Messiah. It wasn't necessarily a, um, a, I don't know, was it, a, was it an actual expression of belief in the Messiah or that uh, I, I, I hear what you're saying and I believe it and I'm ready to receive the Messiah, which I guess is essentially one and the same, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, John's preaching did include the statement, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, um, which was a reference to Christ and who was very likely on the scene when John said this. Um, <clears throat> so, so I, I can't see John's preaching as not being related to the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But if you remember people, we think of that in a new Testament sense because it's in the new Testament, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's a very old Testament ish time in history Yes. Because John the Baptist is very much a transitional figure. Mm -hmm. um, he's like an Old Testament prophet in the New Testament era, at, right at this kind of hinge pin point in the story. Um, so the people of Israel, the, the heightened sense of the, the Messiah was perhaps drummed up more so than at other periods in history and had been for some time. Um, so they were ready to hear about this. And John comes on the scene preaching in a way that others hadn't since the days of Malachi. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it's fair to say John referenced Jesus Christ and people who were being baptized mm -hmm. unto John's preaching knew who he was, knew who Jesus was. At least those that were in the immediate locale. Cause like you said earlier, yeah. somewhere further removed and somehow had that disconnect. Right. Um, all right. I think we need to move on to something yes. else here. We've got, okay, we've got another 20 minutes to go, uh, Okay, let me mention this one, uh, and I and I know what we typically mean by it, but I felt like in sort of fleshing out this statement to people who may not understand and 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 thus kind of have some confusion in our in our expression of this. When we talk about the immutability of God, how would you define that? Um, the simplest way I could define it is that God does not change. Right, right. We say God does not change. Um, how do we explain then his taking on the form of a man in which God, uh, eternally pre-existent as a spirit now changes in form to take on the body of a, of, of a man. And now, as we understand it, Jesus, at least that part of the Godhead resurrected with a glorified body, ascended to heaven and still has that body, which he did not have prior to his incarnation. So that seems to me to be a change. There could be maybe other changes people might cite, but what, how would, how would, would that affect the definition or our expression of what immutability is? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, my understanding of immutability is it has more to do with his intangible attributes, mm -hmm. um, that it has to do with his, like his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his love, uh, and so on, his transcendence, his imminence and so on. Um, though I, I guess transcendence maybe would be the question where this one lies. 
uh, when a transcendent God becomes flesh and dwells among men, is he still transcending? <laughs> um, that's that's maybe where where the question is kind of kind of lodged. But I, I guess I don't see him becoming flesh as a change to God, so long as he still maintains the same intangible attributes of his nature. Good. And that's kind of what I had mentioned was, you know, the immutability, the concept of immutability refers to his nature, not to his form or yeah. even of his actions. And what I mean by that is, um, is that, okay, he's going to do this over here and he, and he does this over yeah. here. Oh, well, he did different actions. Therefore he changed. No, no, he didn't change. It was just different. And these are different uh, expressions uh, and different forms, but never a change to his nature. Yeah. And I would also say that from the human perspective, it does appear to be changed because we are finite. And at one moment, Jesus was not on the earth. And the next moment he's born and he is on the earth. And and we see this change happen over time. Uh, God himself is infinite and transcends time itself. So that is how he is able to be the lamb slain physically before the foundation of the world. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. That's neat. So I don't think there was ever a time where, you know, God was essentially without the, the physical son of God, if I can say it that way. Right. Because he doesn't, he doesn't see things in, in reference to time. And maybe that's breaking brains a little bit, but I don't understand that either. You know, that, God essentially is an eternal being that he sees all time in, in the present. Um, does that make sense? Um, I'm not sure I followed all that cause I was trying to think of something else too, but, um, but I, I think you hit on something too, when you say we can break some brain cells and that's okay at a certain well, point to say, let me see if I can rephrase it. Yeah. So, I mean, was God essentially sitting around in the ether for all of eternity before creation, uh, just waiting for everything to start? <laughs> you know, waiting for his moment when he was going to say, let there be light. No, um, you know, no. was he just waiting, you know, around uh, until it was time for Jesus to become incarnate? Uh, you know, was he looking at his watch? Uh, you know, I don't mean for no, this to, to be ir irreverent, irreverent, right? but he is eternal. He right. sees everything in the moment that he is. He is the I am. Um, so, and, and Jesus even refers to himself as that. Mm -hmm. Um to, to much to the chagrin of, of those who stood around him. Um, but all that to say, uh, you know, I think the answer to that kind of breaks the brain a little bit. Mm, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we can still believe that he's immutable despite saying, oh, well, he set aside some of his attributes, you know, some of his knowledge when he was here and no one knows the coming except for the father. Oh, mm -hmm. well, that seems like a change. Well, we, we still have to, you, you still have to kind of reconcile scripture at a certain point when we say, I don't really totally understand that, you know, um, yeah. when, when God says, uh, let us make man in our image. I don't know that I totally, you know, I mean, there's certain things it's okay that we can't encapsulate God entirely, but, mm -hmm. uh, okay. Well, that kind of applies to Christmas in a way, sort of incarnation <laughs> there. Sure, It so, does. All right. What do you want to hit next? Uh, your choice. Okay. Okay. Putting it all on me. <laughs> I'm putting it all on you today. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of feeling, uh, you know, <laughs> feeling yeah. risky. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It might be risky. Um, so I, um, read this article a while back and I just thought these were, uh, these were a good point. It was, um, 
speaking of Ron DeSantis in some sense, um, and I don't. Oh, maybe it's political. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, I think, a speech that he made, but I thought, uh, um, boy, these these three ingredients of leadership uh, were, were good. Uh, I, I drew out of this. He said uh, in the middle of this here, I think it basically after that, you know, uh, tremendous uh, victory in Florida during the midterm elections when they just mm-hmm. just did astronomically, you know, mm-hmm. smoked um, it, yeah. blew everything out. So he says that what we've shown in Florida is you can stand up for the truth. You can stand on principle. You can fight the woke elite. You can win. But then he says, um, and I think this is important because the survival of the American experiment requires a revival of the enduring American principles that make this country unique. And Florida's formula is everything we do is rooted in those founding principles of our country. We douse it with a very heavy dose of common sense which is in very short supply nowadays. And we buttress that with having the courage to lead on issues where you know you may get incoming fire, but that's the price of leadership nowadays. And three things jumped out, founding principles, common sense, and courage to lead. I thought mm-hmm. that was that was good. Uh, th- a good threesome right there is understanding you yeah. have to have some core principles, not just politically, but in our lives, we have to have core principles couple that with sense, you know, that God has given us and then have the courage to lead on those things, regardless of whether you think you're going to enter a firestorm or not. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm sure there's uh, other things that can be added to principles of leadership, but that's a good general, yeah, general summation. Yeah. And I don't know that he was laying it out exactly at 1.123, but that jumped out to me. I would add to that taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, not trying to point the, the finger of blame, you know, okay. when something goes wrong, own it. Good. Take responsibility. But, yep, yep. That is and big. Many, many other things. Sure. Um, okay, let's see. Um, the other, let's see, I can just pick out one of these here. Um, I, I was listening recently, I'm listening through a series of podcasts called the rise and fall of mars hill um and it's and it's kind of centering on the story of a mega church under a certain man that basically in the in the church kind of imploded as he says almost overnight and it is it is kind of a fascinating story in a way but uh part of the interest for me is that it's it's a review not not um full-throated, not like super detailed, but as it relates to the story he's trying to tell, he's giving um, a review of evangelicalism to some degree, like here's some here's some parties or circles that combined for this thing and this event, these speakers were here and this guy became famous and this was the pastor of this church and blah, blah, blah. Well, I like to know that. I like to understand that uh, some of that context of broader evangelicalism that I don't really touch mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Um, and so in the, in the process, it spoke of, of a man, and I'm sure people would under would know the name if I, or some would, if I, if I said it, he was, uh, grew up in, in a home, as a homeschooler, wrote a very, um, very popular, uh, book regarding dating, um, or not dating. And, um, and then became a protege of a, like a charismatic, uh, reformed, mega church pastor or whatever, and then became yeah. the 
pastored that church. Is there is there a reason you're not naming him? Oh, I don't. It doesn't really matter. I guess I just don't want to be like one more person beating him to death. But I mean, Joshua Harris, um, I think mm-hmm. it was jo- or Josh Harris, um, became the protege to C.J. Mahaney, then became pastor of the flagship of the Sovereign Grace Movement. Um, eventually s- stepped down um, because he 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 was re- getting quite a bit of criticism about his book and that his book had hurt people and been used to hurt people and that really affected him. Hey, anyway, you could go into the whole conversation of you know how you know why did this all happen? But anyway, mm-hmm. as as successful and as highlighted as he was, especially as a young man, and then uh, the world of evangelicalism really took notice when he. His marriage fell apart. And then like a week later, he said he doesn't know that he's a Christian anymore, you know. Mm. And then he then he published um, kind of like a, a guide, uh, you know, a paid guide to deconstructing your faith. And that didn't go over well. Mm. So that was pulled within a couple of weeks. But anyway, um, it got me thinking about the deconstruction issue because he's talking about, you know, they talk about deconstructing your faith. Is that what they, yeah, yeah, deconstructing the faith. And yeah. I thought there's somewhere I had read about, uh, I'd read something about deconstruction, make sure you do this, but don't do this. Um, and then I, and I found it again and it was from, it was from stand to reason. It's a, it's an organization. I am not obviously not heavy into this, but I've appreciated the, um, the, uh, demeanor and the, and much of the content of, uh, Greg Kokel. And his uh, organization here called Stand to Reason been around a long time, and their their approach to you know helping you become an ambassador for Christ, and and part of their approach is your attitude, your your um, part of their teaching, their curriculum, you know, is your approach to things, not just just logical arguments. But anyway, um, so on their on their site or through their app, and, and authored by Alan Schleeman, one of their um, staff members. He talks, he has this article, reform your faith, don't deconstruct it. Reform your faith, don't deconstruct it. And he makes the, uh, the good point that in deconstructing faith, you have to have a standard to which you're realigning. In mm-hmm. other words, it's like if, I, uh, if I'm resetting a, my gyroscope, there has to be a standard. Otherwise, if I'm just like deconstructing to deconstruct, I'm just pulling things apart with no standard. Well, it's just a mess. You're not going anywhere. You're deconstructing in no direction. But if you're if you're reforming it to a standard and saying, "Wow, as I really see who God is, and I and I begin to understand what Scripture is really saying, and I and I feel in turmoil because the things I've believed for so long, they're kind of a house of cards, or you know, uh, oh, I, I see it so differently now, and so people feel like, oh, I'm in a deconstruction. O- okay, well, I guess if that's the terminology you want to use. Uh, that's fine, but but really, it has to be a realignment to Scripture, and you have to understand the the supremacy, yeah. the standard of Scripture itself. And well, that's so, just, I, that's the, just called growth. Yeah, right, right. And that's the fact that growth. so many people go through a period of doubt, realignment. They maybe attach to somebody's teaching or or a you know a thought on something, and then they realize later, oh wait, no, I don't agree with that. That's not right, and and. And unfortunately, some people go through extraordinarily hurtful experiences in the process of learning that. Um, but still, like you say, it's growth. And yet it can't just be, well, I'm throwing Christianity aside. I'm deconstructing my faith. No, wait, you have to understand that the scripture still has to be central. And we have to clarify everything through that lens. 
Yeah. You know, not just a, well, I don't, I yeah, don't know. To be, uh, to be clear for the listeners, deconstruction is a term mm-hmm. that has been given to some folks in which they claimed to be Christians for at least some time in their life. Mm-hmm. And they're no longer at a place where they're maybe agnostic anymore or confused or maybe they just right. they claim to not understand. They've now come to a point where they say, oh, I get it now. I was not a Christian, nor do I want to be, and I don't believe any of that anymore. Hmm. And they, they move to either atheism or you know, something, something akin to that. It's, it's not, it's not talking about when someone changes denominations. It's not talking about when someone changes their theology. It's talking about when someone says I was a Christian and I don't believe that anymore. Right. It's more like that to say I, I deconstructed faith and religion and, and, and I took it all apart and there's nothing there for me. Yeah. Um, And I, Okay. So, so they say reform your faith, don't deconstruct it. You could find other words for it, I guess, even other than reform. But the point is that you're al- realigning it to scripture, regardless of how painful that is. You have to have that standard, that source to which you're looking to say, how does everything else match up? Not, not just taking things apart, because to me, again, you, if, if you're just taking the Legos apart and throwing them around the room, you're not ending up with anything at the end and there's really no center there. So yeah. I, we'll link well, I to guess that the reason, uh, yeah, article. Yeah, we can link to that in the show notes. The reason why I guess I wanted to make the, the distinction clear for the listeners is because there are some circles in which if someone changes what they believe to something, you know, some different shade of it, oh, that person, they've they've left the faith or they've deconstructed or what have you. And it's just because like, well, you disagree with them, yeah. Yeah, well, no, maybe they've just grown past where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to now slander them. Um, right, <laughs> but, so, right. but to be clear, deconstruction is when someone essentially says, I reject Christianity now and I, I accept, you know, atheism, which we would likely say about that, that they probably were not born again to begin with. Um, right. That's a, that's could, a bold could statement. Be. Could be. And, uh, you know, I own that, uh, I'll take it, you know, you know, that's a bold statement. I'm fine with that. Um, but that's, that's what I believe. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> and I, and I have to say, and I'm not, and I'm not necessarily accusing Josh Harris of anything. I, I just, I, I stand back and kind of wonder, I wonder if he was hurt so deeply, uh, or if there's other issues going on that he is more wounded than he is lost, um, mm-hmm. and trying to, uh, you know, make sense of things and return to a, a normalcy. I can't, uh, can't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not saying that if somebody, you know, questions Christianity, they're innately lost. Um, yeah, I'm not talking about questioning it, questioning it. Um, I'm talking about rejecting it. Mm. And there have been other prominent individuals who were oh, professing yeah. Christians who now reject it openly in, in, in assert themselves as atheists. Uh, I would say they were never saved to begin with. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying, how some folks, you know, maybe are genuine Christians and they're now to a point where they just, they're like a man without a country because others have scorned them and rejected them so bad that they don't know where in the world they belong or where they're going to go. Yeah. Um, and that's a terrible feeling. Yeah. And it's terrible. And, and sadly for some circles of Christianity, the best advertisement uh, for the, the enemy side <laughs> is the mm. friendly side, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and I put friendly in air quotes, meaning, you know, uh, that sometimes, uh, folks are pretty good at, uh, 
selling people on the opposition by just being jerks. <laughs> yeah. Um, With friends like so, you who needs enemies. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, that brings us really to the end of our time. And, uh, and we do wish you the best and, uh, and hope that you have a, uh, a, a good Christmas, a Merry Christmas, a Happy Christmas, a jubilant Christmas, a festive Christmas. Well, I don't know. No, Splendid. Stupendous. Splendid. Oh, yeah. Hey, that's yeah. great. Just absolutely hilarious. Phenomenal. Oh, phenomenal. What? Hilarious. Oh, wait, wait. No, hilarious. that's not the right a one. Hilarious yeah, Christmas. Maybe, maybe, yeah. You can have a hilarious Christmas, too. You could, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> have a hilarious Christmas. <laughs> yeah. That's how I'm going to end this podcast right there. Folks, have a hilarious Christmas. We are encouraging balance, <laughs> developing perspective, and connecting faith to practice. This is Reason Together. <laughs>